Jesus taught that in order to receive eternal life, one must be what? Born again. You have to be born again. That's what Jesus said. Not like, you know, my uncle became born again and he tried to convince my whole family to become born again. Not a denomination. Not that type of born again. Jesus said you have to be born again. But just like the stained glass I mentioned, just like symbols, Jesus is always talking in what? Parables, riddles, metaphors. So he says you got to be born again. So I thought that's a pretty important subject. Jesus tells us we have to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's see. If you want eternal life, you're going to have to be born again. So how is one born again? Do you know how? I bet you do know in some way because all of us have been born. (laughs) We've all been born. So when Nicodemus asked Jesus, you know, about the kingdom of heaven, Jesus didn't even answer his question. He shifted the conversation. He said, Nicodemus, let me tell you the truth. Don't ask me any more questions. I'll tell you what you're really looking for. You want to know how to get eternal life. And Jesus said, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus, he's not that foolish. We always, when, sometimes when we read the Bible, we go, I would have answered that so differently. Jesus, Nicodemus is one of the smartest people of his day. And he says to Jesus, so what you're saying, Jesus, is I got to go back inside my mom and be born all over again? I thought that was impossible. I'm too big. <laughs> but we know from last week's lesson how Jesus teaches. And I'm going to give you an example from Scripture exactly how Jesus teaches. If you go to Hebrews chapter 8, I'll read it for you. Here's what it says about sanctuaries. Nice, big sanctuaries. Paul writes, They offer worship in a sanctuary that is a sketch and shadow of the heavenly one. This is what I was talking about before. Paul continues in chapter 9 saying, Religions, in a way, are set up as symbols to explain something mysterious, something that you and I don't have the eyes and ears to see yet. And he continues, the sanctuary, a church, a temple, a tent, is the whole, this is what he says, it's the Holy Spirit's way of showing with a visible parable, this is Paul, that as long as the sanctuary stands, People can't just walk in on God, except for iTech. iTech could walk in on God. Under this system, the gifts and sacrifices that people offer, they, can't, they don't really give you the full expression of God. Right? Some people come to church and they don't feel God. So the Bible, Paul's saying, it's just a sketch. It's just an image. It can't satisfy pe- people's consciences, Paul says. They're just limited to rituals and behaviors. Paul says it's essentially a temporary arrangement until a complete overhaul could be made. Paul is describing that religion itself is a temporary arrangement of what is really going on in the spiritual realm. The physical world is a temporary state. I don't have to prove that. 
It is. But it's like a practice, like a rehearsal for what really is going to happen when we move on. You know, when you take the Eucharist, the sacrament of the Eucharist, it's just a symbol, like this sanctuary. All the sacraments are symbols. They're placeholders for what's going to happen. The Bible says, eat my, eat my body, eat, drink my blood. Are you really eating Jesus' body? Are you really drinking his blood? He's saying, experience me now, and when you pass, have this for now while you're alive, and every time you eat of it, remember that I'm about to have a banquet when you come. When you arrive, there's going to be a party. We're going to talk more about that party. So when I was in the Coast Guard, we had boot camp in Cape May, New Jersey. So I'll be at the town over uh, on vacation. And in all, during boot camp, we had all these activities. They seemed ridiculous. So ridiculous. They would set us like four, 20 people on one side of a plank, 20 people on another, tie us all together, and we had to walk together. Do you think we did it the first time? No, it was a mess. But it was a training, an exercise, a rehearsal to get us all to work together, and we had people yelling at us the whole time. Church, in the same way, is a rehearsal. Sometimes it's a mess. Sometimes the pastor's yelling at us, too. These types of things in this world show us that you need a practice for what's real. Every baseball player goes to practice. Every athlete, every dancer, every singer, every student practice tests before they take the real tests. So today, I had to set this up. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel of Philip to understand another mystical saying that Philip learned from Jesus. Saying 52... So the Gospel of Philip was discovered in Nag Hammadi, Egypt. And I always say this every week. My mom is appreciating. She says, now I know. I I feel like a scholar at the table. Um, But they discovered more books that were not replacements for the Gospels, but were different expressions of early Christianity before the Bible was even put together in the 4th century. This came from the 3rd century. So here's a kind of different passage than you've ever likely read in scripture. In saying 52, it says this, great is the mystery of marriage. Without it, the world would not be. The existence of the world depends on marriage, doesn't it? Some kind of union, so that that union creates what? More people, right? So there's a truth there. But Philip writes, think of sex. It possesses deep powers though its image is filthy. What an interesting passage. I thought I would choose a passage about sex because we never talk about that in church. And the idea that it's filthy actually comes from where? The church. (laughs) So, but have we ever thought about this? Where do weddings take place most often? In church, right? People get all dressed up. Each party's dressed to the nines. Sometimes a party's wearing black. Sometimes another, the other party's wearing white. A father walks, you know, this is ideally, walks the bride-to-be down the aisle and gives, the father gives away 
the bride to another father, a spiritual type of father. And this father, you know, this is just the image, is going to perform a ritual that joins two people together. Everyone's excited. Everybody's gathered around to watch. Love is in the air. A mystical moment is happening. This is a sacrament, but it's also too symbolic of what will eventually really join the two parties. In my wedding ring, I have inscribed a passage, Ephesians 5, and it tells what Paul wrote about this ritual act, the sacrament called marriage and its mysterious alchemical power. It says, no longer are they two. No longer, you know, my wife is over there, and you can see the product of our love is is coming next month. Ephesians 5 says, no longer are are they two. No more Ashley and Sean. No more husband and wife. No more male or female, actually. Paul says there's no more male, female, Jew, Scythian, Roman, or Jew. And for you are all made one in Christ. They've become one flesh. This, Paul writes, is a huge mystery. And he admits, I don't pretend to understand it all. Paul never got married. You have to pay your dues to talk about marriage. You have to be married. I've paid them. I'm still paying them. Ashley's paid more than me, I think. But it's a good thing we're one and the same. Equal debts, equal profits, right? But marriage is a sacred ritual where two people come together and learn to live selflessly with one another. I'm talking about an idyllic marriage, right? Just imagery. What it might look look like. Because these days, it's hard to stay married. We have lots of options. (laughs) And there's different demands on us different laws, different freedoms. But if you can endure this process of marriage, you will be changed. It is a labor itself. And you will be made beautiful. In our love for one another, we have made our we've made children in our own image. And you've seen both of our children. We have twins. It's like Cain and Abel over there. You've seen, they've seen the best and worst of Ashley and I. Everybody thinks we're saints, but we just act like that in church. (laughs) Our children have seen the best and worst of us. And our prayer for our children is not that they would merely imitate us. That's, oh, I hope they become little copies of me and Ashley. I hope they outgrow us. I hope they're smarter than me. I hope that they will do way better than Ashley and I have. And Ashley and I hope we can give them away one day. To be joined together with someone else and continue the chain of life that Ashley and I have wrestled. To wrestle, it's wrestling. You know that was the Hebrew word, you know what the Hebrew word for wrestling is? Israel. God called his beloved children, I wrestle with you. <laughs> and in this temporary world of flesh where we live out our lives, we get to behold 
what's happening in this eternal places, in the spiritual places. We all are hoping, hoping to attend. But Jesus says the only way to get the invitation behind the stained glass, behind the sacraments, you want the invitation. People try to do all kind of mental gymnastics around this verse. You have to be born again. So Philip writes, great is the mystery of marriage. Without it, the world would not be. How are people born? Think of sex. It possesses deep powers. Though some think the image is dirty. We all love intimacy. We're shy to talk about it publicly, so I won't make us all blush. But the idea behind it, it does possess deep powers. There's no doubt about it. There's a power in love to take two things wholly, diff- wholly different, like chemistry, right? Join them together and make a whole new life. That when it's ready, that life is born out of a woman, out of a mother, and into the world. And today we're in church, we're talking about spiritual and mystical things. Don't be surprised. So we want to understand what Jesus and the apostles meant when they talked about marriage and physical union because that will lead us to the answer. What the heck does it mean to be born again? Earthly marriage is just symbolic. It's beautiful and has many different variations today. All acceptable because there's any symbol can become art. But we're going back into Jesus' world, into the time of the Bible, and we're looking at how they used words and languages and images to see what they were talking about because they used that image to try to express something deep to us, something revelatory. And so what is the mystery of marriage Jesus referred to when he said himself over and over again, I'm the bridegroom. Did you know that Jesus called himself the bridegroom? Isn't it strange? Why would he say that? Do you know who he called the bride? The church. Over and over and over he said this. In Matthew, he's sitting with his disciples and there's, should we fast Jesus? And Jesus says, why the heck should we fast? The bridegroom is here. The party is about to start. Jesus says, as long as the bridegroom's here, Why would we fast? John the Baptist, who had his own disciples, you know, John was the one who set his disciples up with Jesus. And here's what what John the Baptist says. He goes, I made it public that I wasn't the Messiah. Remember everybody kept coming to John saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? And John said, I made it public that I was not the Messiah, but simply the one ahead of him to get things ready. The one who gets the bride is, by definition, the bridegroom. And the bridegroom's friend, the best man, John says, I'm the best man. And I'm in place at Jesus' side, and I could hear every word he's saying. Can you? I'm genuinely happy, John says. How could I be jealous when I know that the wedding is about to happen? 
John's disciples might have felt bad for leaving Jesus, but he clarifies, he must become greater. I must become less. I'm just the best man. This is why I said last week we have to understand how Jesus teaches. Jesus uses the language of this world to explain the realities of that world. Jesus was trying to teach the world that the only way a temporary and mortal being could ever live forever is to what? Be joined to an immortal being. Like the husband dressed in black is joined with the partner dressed in white. But we know what happens. They take off those garments and something new. Two are made one. It's a mystical ritual. This is what Jesus had been teaching his disciples. Many people just heard the surface of what Jesus teaches, and many people still do. It takes a lot of different lenses to see what Jesus is teaching. He wanted to take people under the surface of what he was saying. He says in John 16, I've used figures of speech with you this whole time. This is Jesus saying. Soon I'll drop the figures of speech and I'll tell you about the Father in plain language. So 2,000 years later, I'm going to try to tell you plainly what Jesus means by this. Jesus came to as a teacher. Nobody would argue that. As a redeemer, as a messiah, but the most important thing he came as is a bridegroom. He came to plant a mustard seed inside of us, one that would grow and make us spiritually mature so that we would learn to accept that this life is a temporary place. And the mystical symbolism of marriage shows us how two very different things can come together and create something new, something even more beautiful than what existed in the first place. Jesus' eternal truth planted in us takes root inside of our minds, in our hearts, eventually in our whole being, and when the time is right, something new is born. This is how we should see Jesus, as the lover of our souls, as the bridegroom. Hosea says, one day you will no longer call me master, but you will call me my beloved. Jesus is the one who loved us so much that he became one of us, united with us, so that we could be born all over again, not just temporarily, but eternally. Jesus unites with us and over life, just as a baby takes nine months to grow. And what happens in that nine months affects their whole life. What happens in this life, whether we grow or mature, matters. That's what science has taught me we should grow and develop. We should not just see Jesus as a God to be worshipped, 
not just as a wise teacher, not just even as Lord and Master, but this should become a loving relationship, as intimate as we would imagine any idyllic marriage. Paul gives us further instruction. He says we look inside and what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start. They're created new. The old life is gone. The new life burgeons. I got married a long time ago. I remember who I was when I did. This is not that man. I've been transformed so many times in this process, I've lost count. I was, right, you could, she can tell you, I was a foolish boy of a man when I first got married. She's changed too. But today, what you see in front of me is a completely new creation. I've been tempted to mess it all up. That's the nature of human beings. But I've held on. And that is what Christ taught his disciples. When he was leaving, he said it over 20 times in the same chapter. Hold on. Hold on. Abide in me. Count it. I think it's John 15. Abide in me. Hold on to me. No matter what, disciples. Hold on to my truth. Hold on to my love. Because I'm coming back for you. So many versions of myself have passed in this life of mine. I have died at least 30 times. And I've been born again at least 30 times. And each time, I've held on. I've held on to love. I've held on to truth. And if you hold on, as you're pulled through the ringer of life. That's how you get transformed. This is the mystery of marriage. This is the mystery of love. This is the mystery of Christ being the bridegroom and the church being the bride. Christ will always hold on to you. You don't have to doubt that. But it takes two to tango. So our part Christ is holding on to you, if Christ is reaching out his hand, what should you do? Reach out yours. Hold on to his love. Hold on to his truth. And if you do, if you respond a thousand times saying, I do, I do, I do, I do, I do trust in you, Christ. I do trust in your truth. If you would do that. Not what people say of Jesus, by the way. That's an illusion. You have to find the bridegroom yourself. I'm just giving the appetizer to the trail. When you see Christ for yourself, when you go to his door and knock late at night, he will open it. And you will learn that he is on the other side. When you two come together, you and Christ, a union will be formed. You and Christ will be made one. When that marriage happens, when that wedding happens, when your mind and body unite with Christ, the Bible says there's a thunderous celebration. 
So much rejoicing takes place in the kingdom, not just because of a marriage. Something even better just happened because a delivery has been announced. A birth has been announced. When you and Christ unite in human and spiritual love, you will have created a child. His truth in your life, your life in his truth, will give birth to something new, and your marriage to him will have created exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus would have to happen for somebody to have eternal life from this temporary body of yours and from his eternal spirit you will be born again Amen Amen